Turn, if you would, once again to Proverbs chapter 11. I did have a couple of questions this morning about when were we going to be done (laughs) and what we were going to do next. So we're going to do, uh, after today, seven more lessons of Proverbs, and then we're going to be done. Uh, I'm going to continue studying Proverbs because I found it uh, shocking, but that's just me. Uh, After that, we're going to go to 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And we're actually going to do something weird. We're going to start in the middle of 1st Kings. If you go to chapter 11 of 1st Kings, you see what became of Solomon. And it's not a pleasant chapter. So we're going to pick up in chapter 11 of 1st Kings, and we're going to discuss the history of Israel and Judah after the division of the kingdom following the death of Solomon till they were carried off in captivity. So that's what we're going to do next. It's going to be uh, a history lesson. Um, We'll try to get through it a little bit faster than I normally do, but I say that every time and it never works. Well, my kids enjoy reminding me how old I am. And it was pointed out nine years ago when I had a one-year-old nine years ago, that I would reach a point where I could qualify for senior discounts and my kids would still be eating kids' meals. (laughs) Friday, Teresa and I went to the movie and I got in for the senior price. I turned 55 on Friday. So in my kids' eyes, I am now old. I know, <laughs> but don't, t- long ago, yes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know, I still have a 10 year old and two in college and two in high school, so I don't have any money at all. <laughs> We're working our way through chapter 11 of the book of Proverbs. We're going to pick up today in verse 9, and we're going to try to cover six verses. It is interesting because these six verses really cover two different topics. One of the topics is our words, what we say. The other topic is the condition of the nation when it is run by righteous people or when it is not. And what is interesting is that these two topics, the use of the tongue and the righteousness as it is displayed in the nation or the community, become intertwined because our words for good or evil determine the direction of our lives, which determine the direction of our families, which determine the direction of our society in which we live. So that is where we're headed today, picking up in verse 9. With his mouth, the godless destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous escape. So the first obvious question is, why, not how, but why would the godless want to destroy their neighbor? The second question is, how is that done through the use of words. 
So why do people want to destroy their neighbors? Come on, this is easy. Justify their own beliefs, practices, actions, etc. Somebody else? Jealousy? They just don't like them. They're not like me. I'm better than they are, whichever direction you want to go. There is no shortage of reasons why we want to tear people down. You know, if you look at the godless, righteous division, we see when Christ is speaking that he says, they attacked me, they're going to attack you, and it shouldn't surprise you. They're going to try to tear you down. But even between less godly people, there's this desire to tear people down for fun or for profit. I believe I can get something by destroying your reputation, by destroying your position, by somehow belittling you in the community. And we do that through our words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. May be physically true, but in practical matter, our words can devastate the world in which we live. We can destroy the life of an individual, and we can destroy a community through our words. With his mouth, the godless destroys his neighbor. We might also throw in the question that was asked to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Is it the person that lives physically next door to me? Yes. But we saw in Christ's story, when he was asked this question, he presented the parable of the Good Samaritan and tried to encourage us to broaden the definition of who is my neighbor. But I think in the context here, a neighbor is anybody that we should reasonably expect to be treated kindly. You know, if if I'm at war with somebody, maybe they're not a neighbor in that particular situation. But you know, when I interact with my physical neighbor, a co-worker, somebody at the grocery store, somebody that I just happened to meet on the street, there is a reasonable expectation that I will treat them honestly and fairly. And to not do so, to use my words to tear them down, is a violation of this, well, it's an example, I guess, of what we're seeing right here. Why do we tear people down with our words? Because we want to elevate ourselves. We want to elevate ourselves to gain more power, more prestige, or just for the fun of it. I actually have known people, I don't know if you know anybody like this, who seem to enjoy picking each other apart just for the fun of it. There's just this malicious streak of I've got to tear people down who aren't, well, they're not me. I have one individual in mind, and, you know, he has his family that he's very close to, and he has a few friends that he's very close to, 
And outside that, anything's fair game. I can tear you down. doesn't matter. Why, why not? But what we're going to see is when relationships div- dissolve to the point where this is happening, the relationship is going to collapse and the society in which that occurs is going to collapse. With his mouth, the godless destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous escape. Now, what does that mean? The godless person is attempting to tear us down through their words. But a knowledgeable person is able to counter that and say and do what is necessary to prove the godless person wrong. We see this in the New Testament where we are told that we are to live such lives that when the slanders are thrown at you, people will go, no, that's not them. You can say those lies about them, but that's not really who they are. We know better than that. We know that that is not how they really live their lives. So the godless are busy tearing people down. The righteous, through their knowledge, are escaping from this. We'll have more discussion about that in a moment. Verse 10. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. We're going to see in verse 10 and verse 11 and verse 14, a discussion of the city or the nation, the political entity, and how it prospers or not based on how the righteous are being treated. Now, it is interesting, verse 10 does not say the city rejoices when the righteous are in power. Now, it probably should rejoice, But that's not what it's saying right here. What it is saying is simply this. Within a given society, within a given community, there are certain groups and certain people who do okay. They benefit from a society. So if you have a law-abiding society where the laws are generally followed, those individuals who keep the law, will do better than those who don't keep the law. Simple enough. Those people who habitually, who have been raised to do the right thing, will prosper in that society. Conversely, if you have a society that is driven by corruption, that is driven by Uh, crime that occurs all the time, the apparent winners of that society, the people who appear to prosper, are the criminal uh, elements of that society. I mean, this is pretty straightforward stuff. The reason I make that distinction is this. You can have a despot, a dictator, who is smart enough to know that if I keep the rule of law, righteous people will prosper and my country will prosper. 
Even the king recognized that Daniel accomplished things. Even Pharaoh recognized when I put Joseph in charge, things worked. So it is possible, it is possible to have a despot who recognizes the necessity of a society in which the righteous prosper. Now, this is not an argument in favor of despotism or dictatorships because we all recognize the flaws in those form of governments, which is simply the fact that you're flipping the coin or rolling the dice to know if your despot's any good or not. And the odds aren't really in your favor historically. But whatever form of government you have, if the righteous are prospering, the city rejoices. And if the righteous are not prospering, there is something wrong with the structure of the society in which you live. Now at this point, there are some of you who would like to have a huge political discussion. And we're not going to do it. Oh. What we need to do, though, is to start thinking about society in the categories of righteousness and evil, not just in the category of what gets me ahead. Now, all of us have this belief that we are the righteous, so that if we prosper, society is prospering, so that if I'm prospering, things must be good, so I'm going to go work to advance my own individual goals and desires. And we've missed the point. The point is not what works out best for me, but what works out best for the righteous and then work very hard to be one of the righteous. Look at the newspaper. Read the newspaper. Study what is going on in the world. And ask yourselves, where are the societies in which the righteous prosper? Go look at history. Find those periods where the righteous prospered. And those societies were better off than the others. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Now, we know, at least we're supposed to know, that we are not supposed to rejoice when the wicked perish. Well, maybe we're not supposed to. We are not supposed to gloat over, our, over individuals who are falling into the sin, into the punishment of the sin that is in their lives. We are supposed to be sad about that. We are supposed to be sad when someone we know suffers the consequences of the sin that they have chosen to follow. 
You know that. If one of your children does something horribly wretched and then suffers the consequences for it, you don't go, well, ha <laughs> ha. No, you grieve over it. And in the same way, if someone in this community, this church, falls into some sin, we're not supposed to say, ah, serves them right. They were lousy people anyway. We are supposed to grieve over that. We are supposed to grieve over the results of sin in this world. But the reality is, the reality is that when the wicked are in power and the wicked are kicked out, when the wicked are destroyed, the community is much better off. The community itself is better when the wicked are not in power. Why? Because the wicked do wicked things. The wicked do unwise things. The wicked do those things that are counter to the wisdom of God. And God says, I will not be mocked. You cannot not follow my will and prosper as an individual, as a family, as a community, as a city, as a nation. So the wicked, when they perish, produces rejoicing because the community knows that they're better off without them. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is destroyed. The second half of this is the connection. It is the connection between the verses dealing with the words of our mouth and the condition of the city or nation itself. That's the connection between the two. But let's look at the first part. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. First off, what is the blessing of the upright? That got him quiet. Huh? The truth? The blessing they receive from God. The prosperity that was mentioned earlier. Good laws. Wisdom. Nice answer. Influence. When I looked at this verse, two totally different answers came to my mind first, okay? One of them was the answer that was mentioned back there, which was God is going to bless the righteous. Okay? He is going to bless the righteous. Don't you want to be next to the righteous when God is blessing the righteous? I mean, let's face it. Some of it's going to spill over. I mentioned earlier, Joseph. Wherever Joseph ended up, be it in Potiphar's house, in prison, or in Pharaoh's house, wherever he was, God blessed him. And even the pagans knew that I received some blessing because the righteous are being blessed. 
And we see this throughout the Scripture. We see this in, say, Abraham, where we're told, we see that God is blessing you, be our friend. So the blessings that God bestows upon the righteous spill over and semi-intelligent pagans begin to notice this and go, I want some of that blessing. So that's one form of the blessing of the upright. But we're talking here about words. The second part of it is the mouth of the wicked destroy. What does the mouth of the upright, the mouth of the righteous declare? What comes out of it? God's praise? What comes out is a blessing. What comes out is that which is necessary, that which is fitting for that moment in time, for that situation, for that community, for that group. You know, in the scriptures, we talk about blessings and we talk about curses. I can curse my children or I can bless my children. When I bless my children, it's not just this modern version of self-esteem, build them up no matter what. To bless my children is to take the word of God, the wisdom of God, the understanding of God, and speak it in ways that will bring blessing to my children or my family or my community or my city or my nation. The righteous back to verse 10, when they prosper, when they are given the opportunity to prosper, and once again, prosper can mean a lot of different things. It doesn't necessarily just mean large piles of cash. We've already had this discussion numerous times. Prosper may just mean the ability to raise your family the way God would have you raise your family. That's prospering prospering may be the ability to worship god as you see fit that's prospering prospering may be the ability to go to work every day it may not mean the opportunity to get paid without going to work the work itself may be the sign of prosperity all of that is encompassed in the idea of prosperity. So when the righteous prosper, the righteous bless the community by providing wisdom and insight and understanding within the community in which God has placed them. It can be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Daniel torn out of their homeland and plopped down into the middle of a wretched government. But pretty soon the wretched government recognized that these guys know what they're doing. 
the blessing, the words of the upright bless the community in which they live and God blesses their presence by allowing them to prosper. Hmm. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. We came back to what fifty years of God's word being read, prayer being said, the Ten Commandments obeyed, and the encroaching ground was planted seed. Yep. And I can tell you how to do that tomorrow. But you don't want to know the answer. Let's keep going. You do? You really want to know the answer. Y'all don't have school-age kids. I do. You have school-age grandkids or great-grandkids. If those kids did not go to those public schools, the public school would collapse tomorrow, and it would all be over. We don't like that answer, though. I went to public schools. I got a reasonably good education. That was a few years ago. Yes, Jerry. I went to high school 52 years ago, <laughs> and there was a Bible study in there, yes, and we understand that. But today and tomorrow, there is Bible being taught. I mean, right. I, I'm, I, I mean I'm still in amazement that I have mm-hmm. three offices in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. Obnoxious about it, but when Daniel, when Daniel was plopped into this pagan society, Daniel didn't spend all of his time bemoaning, I could be a good follower of God if, and fill in the blank with whatever it is. He followed God in the midst of the pagan society, which is very hard. It is very difficult. And they ended up throwing him in the lion's den for it. But that's okay, too. That is God's providence. (sighs) Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but the mouth of the wicked, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. Once again, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Really doesn't work. What is it? How is it that the mouth of the wicked can actually destroy a a society, a city, a nation? You know, I run into people who, you know, cuss at me occasionally. You know, they think I did them wrong or something. And, you know, I don't like it. But, you know... Let's face it, it's not destroying the city or the society, is it? How is it that the mouth of the wicked have enough 
power, have enough influence to actually change the city or the nation. You keep wanting to get back to this, don't you? <laughs> They're in the majority. Go ahead. Not personally, but I know of him, yes. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> uh-huh. You tell the lie long enough, you follow you follow a path of foolishness long enough. A community follows a path of foolishness long enough. A church, a family, a community, you fill in whatever level of organization you want. You know, that's what I'm really trying to work at here and not being at all successful about it is we all want to deal with that top level of government. And trust me, we can do that. We can have a long discussion about that. But that oftentimes is distant and abstract and doesn't involve me personally, even though it does. What we need to recognize is that in our form of government, we, the citizens, elect those officials. So if there are foolish people running the country, it is because there are foolish people voting. It is simple as that. The wise can bring blessings to a society. The foolish can promise things, can promise prosperity, they can promise all kinds of things that will not come into being because they violate the word of God. Now, they can have a form of prosperity. They can have, they can have influence, power, and money. Go ahead, Bolton. Please do. How many people voted? How many people voted in the Tuesday election? And number two, do you know what the candidates stand for? Did you all hear that? We have a school board election. How many of you are going to vote in this school board election? And how many of you have any clue what the candidates stand for in this school board election? You see, I can get totally absorbed in how wicked those people are in Washington, D.C. And I can totally lose sight of the fact that I have an obligation in Fort Worth, Texas, Arlington, Texas, Tarrant County, to do what God would have me to do in the place that God has put me. But it's so much more fun 
to talk about those people over whom I have very little control. I'll give you a hint. If you called up one of those school board candidates, they would talk to you on the phone. They would. If you invited 10 friends over, one of those school board candidates would come to your house. They would. Trust me, they would. We had 20 high school kids at our house, and a U.S. congressman came to our house to talk to them. They will do it. Go ahead, Janet. What we need, what we need is we as individuals need to follow the path of wisdom. And then from there, we step in the com- to the community to bring wisdom to the community. Now, there is no promise that it's going to be easy. There is no promise that people aren't going to say bad things about you. Trust me, there is no promise for that. The question is, are you going to follow the path that God has prescribed, or are you going to follow the path that the world dictates, or are you going to work very hard to blend these two together in some form or fashion that can't possibly work? Those are the options that you have. Those are the options. It is easy to complain. It is more difficult to work through issues, to apply wisdom to those issues, and to reach understanding of what needs to be done. It is so much easier to tear people down who disagree with us. Back to verse 9. When the mount, with, the mount, with his mouth, the godless destroys his neighbor. If your goal is to destroy the candidate of the other party, all you are doing is destroying. If you have no wisdom to put forward, all you are doing is destroying. And we live in an age of such strong rhetoric that sometimes it just it doesn't even make sense anymore. We use words just to tear people down, and it doesn't even make sense anymore. I have a good friend who was a precinct chair. The most conservative person on this planet. It drives me crazy. And somebody wanted to run against him to be the precinct chair. And that's fine. It's a free country. Go for it. And the guy, other person's argument is, we need a conservative candidate. I'm going, wait a minute. You may think that he needs to be kicked out because he's done it too long or something. I don't know what. We say these words that tear people down 
and they don't mean anything anymore. And we as believers are not allowed to be that sloppy in the use of our tongues. Our tongues can build or our tongues can destroy. And what our tongues do influences our family, our community, our city, our nation. And that's what this passage is dealing with. When the righteous speak righteously, it blesses the community. When the righteous hide because of fear or because of laziness or for whatever other reason you want, the city, the nation, the community no longer has that blessing. Let's keep going. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. Out of the mouth of the wicked comes wickedness, comes foolishness, comes all these things that we've spent the last 23 lessons in the book of Proverbs trying to get over. That's what comes out. But we know, we know that some of that stuff is exceptionally appealing. Go back to Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7 where we're told about the adulterous woman. Everything she said was exceptionally appealing. It is only when we had faith to see the long-term perspective that we were able to understand that may look good right now, but in the long run, it doesn't work. All it brings is destruction. What the wicked say can win elections if fools are doing most of the voting. Or people who claim to be wise, but when it gets down to the actual election, are only interested in their own self-interest. Go ahead, Ty. What did I do wrong? Why would you want to do it? Okay? And once again, we could have discussions out the wazoo. We could talk about every political issue there was, and it would be fascinating. But the problem is, if you're going to do more than just have sound bites, you need more time. And I can sit up here and I can spew sound bites at you, but it won't do you any good and it won't do me any good. What I want you to do is to go study the scripture and determine what wisdom requires of you. And then go do it. William Wilberforce had a community of believers. And those community of believers decided they were going to stop the slave trade in England. It took him 30 years to do it. And once again, he was a man in a very influential position. It took him 30 years to do it, but they did it. 
because it was the thing God had laid upon their hearts that needed to be done. Do you think that if they tried the first day and it didn't work and they gave up that they would have accomplished anything? No. God gives us wisdom. That would be this. God wants us to learn wisdom, to speak wisdom, to act wisdom, act wisely, and influence the world around us by doing so. Recognizing that in a wicked society, that's sometimes very difficult. A man who lacks judgment derides his neighbors, but a man of understanding holds his tongue. There comes a time when you're better off not talking. A man of understanding holds his tongue. A man who lacks judgment derides his neighbor, puts them down, tears them apart, shreds them up. Sometimes it's better off just not talking. Poor swine. Sometimes we just don't have anything to add to the conversation. If somebody tells you something and they don't ask your opinion about it, you don't necessarily need to share your opinion about it. It may not do any good. Wisdom, prudence, tells us when speaking is valid and important and when it is just filling the air with more sound waves. There was an old novel I read years, years ago by Kurt Vonnegut, and he made the comment that in our age today, most people have nothing to say worthwhile. We just keep talking so we're practiced in case we ever do have anything to say we'll know how to do it (laughs) knowing what is appropriate knowing what is fitting knowing what is useful in a situation is a mark of wisdom there are times when you have to talk And there are times when you're better off not. We're obviously not going to make it, but if you go over a few more chapters, there's two verses back-to-back that confuse a lot of people. Because one of them says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll think he's intelligent. And the next one says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, because all you're doing is falling into his folly. Okay? What's the answer? Do you answer him or not? And the answer is yes. Sometimes God puts it on your heart. God gives you the obligation to tell the fool he's a fool. But other times to tell a fool he's a fool is just getting into a mud wrestling contest with a pig. Unfortunately, the pig enjoys it. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. But there's a difference between humility and just not answering. Yes. There's some I can't bring it into my thought in this thing here. 
Humility is a Christian virtue. It really is. Cowardness, disguised as humility, is not a Christian virtue. When you are called to present the gospel to the wicked king, humility is different than cowardness. Cowardness is, oh, I don't know what to share. I don't know what to say. Martin Luther goes before the court and they demand that he recant his writings. And he says, unless you can convince me by scripture or sound reasoning, I cannot recant. I can't do it. Now, he was perfectly humble. He actually did want to discuss it with them. They didn't want to discuss it with him. But he wasn't a coward. Go ahead. It's been said that uh, it's better to remain silent and be thought ignorant than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Doubt. And there is a yeah. scripture that says something. Yeah. A man who lacks judgment derides his neighbor. Just always talking, always talking, always talking, always putting down, always tearing apart, always shredding. But a man of understanding holds his tongue until he has something worthwhile to say. Once again, there are times when you have to talk. And there are times when you're better off not. How do you know the difference. I'm not sure I can give you a list of rules. First off, the Holy Spirit needs to be present and tell you. Secondly, you need to have wisdom to share in the first place. If you have no wisdom, you're better off being... Thirdly, in the context here, we see that the man who lacks judgment is deriding our na- his neighbor. So if you're talking to this individual, your natural tendency is to get on the bandwagon and start deriding the neighbor too. Right? You know, you get to a group of Republicans and you start bashing, and it just builds on it. You get a group of Democrats together and you start bashing, and it just builds on it. It just feeds on a... F- Don't do that. Don't participate in that. But if it is cowardness that is keeping you from speaking, you need to pray that God gives you the courage to say what needs to be said. If you are dragged before the pagan king and ask to denounce your belief in God or Christ, you are not allowed to do that. You have to speak. If your silence is agreement, you cannot be silent. A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. A society itself is built upon trust. It is built upon the idea that you can tell me something and you can trust me to hang on to that, to keep it, and certainly not to spin it in a totally negative uh, position and 
feed it to somebody else, which is what a gossip does. And finally, verse 14, For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but many advisors make victory sure. I think we can assume that the second half of that is talking about wise advisors. There are lots of fools that will share their opinion. They are not good advisors. When you have problems, do you go to the fool because they'll tell you what you want to hear? Or do you go to the wise even though you really might not like the answer? For lack of guidance, a nation falls. There is the bottom line. There is a path of wisdom. There is a path of foolishness. We have been spending all of these lessons in Proverbs talking about you as an individual following the path of wisdom or following the path of foolishness. If you follow the path of wisdom, when the storms come, your foundation will be secure and you will stand. If you follow the path of foolishness, when the storms come, and they will come, you will collapse. But a society is made up of individuals who are on one of these two paths. And when there are enough members of a society following the path of foolishness, when the storms come, and they come for societies just like they come for individuals, that society, that group, will collapse. Now, I'm sure you would love to know how many does it take? And I have no clue. How many fools? What is the ratio of fool to wisdom in a given society? I have no idea how you would measure that. I do know if you read the paper, if you read the magazines, if you watch the news, there is enough foolishness to go around in some form or fashion. We as individuals, we as individuals need to practice wisdom. We as individuals need to expect wisdom of those that we elect. We as individuals need to build a society in which the righteous prosper or or there will be problems now when there are problems does that mean that we no longer have to walk the path of wisdom has nothing to do with it it does mean it's going to be harder it does mean that it's going to be more difficult let's close in prayer dear heavenly father i pray for our lives i pray for our nation I pray that you would give us wisdom on how to deal with the world in which we live. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.